At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. The last three years have been tough on Canadian entrepreneurs. That's why we are so excited to announce the 2023 Startup Canada Tour, a five-stop national opportunity to connect entrepreneurs across Canada. Join us for keynotes, panels, and practical workshops, an exhibitor zone featuring Canada's support organizations, speed mentoring in our Ask the Expert lounge, and an opportunity to compete in on-site pop-up pitches. We will be in Whitehorse on April 25th, Halifax on May 2nd, Vancouver on May 11th, Calgary on September 28th, and stay tuned for details on our final stop in Ontario. Want a free pass? Use code PODCAST at checkout. Learn more and get tickets now for the closest stop near you at startupcanadatour.ca. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear new stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have social entrepreneur Christina Wong, co-founder and executive director at Employee to Empower, based in Vancouver. Employee to Empower is a registered charitable organization that empowers people who face barriers in Vancouver's downtown east side. Adopting a hand-up, not hand-out approach, it uses entrepreneurship as a vehicle to cultivate community, a sense of belonging, and confidence for people who face work, financial, or social barriers. It provides free access to skills, training, resources such as business planning, mentorship, and education to enable its clients to become the resource themselves and help others, creating ripple effects of impact. Christina created the Cardboard Project, which seeks to engage local entrepreneurs in the downtown east side with other members of the public to raise awareness and showcase artists' voices. She's been nominated for the 2020 YWCA Women of Distinction in the nonprofit category. She was named one of the Global Mail's top 50 business changemakers in Canada, and she's a grant recipient of Visa Canada's She's Next grant program. Christina, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Huge, huge honor. 
<laughs> well, we're delighted to have you here. It's an honor for us. To start, we usually ask our guests, what's the top piece of advice that you hope other entrepreneurs will take away from today's conversation? Well, it's actually the first word um, of your question to start, actually. I remember when I first began, I did it without having any business background or real vision as to what I wanted in the next five years. But really, start even if it's imperfect, because even five years later, uh, the only reason why I feel employment power had a chance to evolve and how it's been now is really sitting down with mentors, asking for 30 minute chunks of their time, making it super easy for them to meet me in places that are close to their work. And I just kept asking for advice and people are more likely to help than we think. I remember I was shocked. I thought, wow, she wants to give me 30 minutes of her time. And actually the first person that I sat down with then invited me to do a competition, which I had to pitch a two-minute idea, and I, you know me. You can already tell that this is way over a minute, my <laughs> response. I'm a storyteller, and I remember just thinking, oh, I can't do a two-minute pitch or one-minute pitch. Um, but we ended up doing it, and we won. So that's how I earned my first mentor. Um, and it started with just starting, even if, it, even if you don't have the full picture ready. So that's my first um, nugget called the wisdom nugget. Um, I, I'm intrigued by what you said about asking for advice and you were surprised that people were happy to give it. In my experience, most people, maybe not, you know, at the very top echelons, but most people are happy to be asked for advice. Um, it's flattering to them and they will have lots of time for for people. So, so, so that was your experience? Yeah, I guess sometimes maybe people feel afraid to ask because maybe afraid of rejection or thinking that this person might be too busy for them. I think at least that was for me because my background's in psychology, right? I don't have a business background. I just remember thinking to myself, oh, like, I don't have these qualifications. And I felt like as long as I had a very big zest, zesty appetite to learn, I was able to learn it. Um, so, but you're right. People are, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. People do tend to be open to giving me that some of their time. As long as they're not like five hours at a time, <laughs> then that works. And how did you deal with with rejection if it happened? Because you say, as, as you said, people you know are afraid of being rejected and that can end up driving their behavior unless they learn how to deal with rejection, how to process it. Drop in, drop in truth nugget questions on me early in the morning. Um, I like it. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, I think it depends on what our perceptions of rejection are and it ties to how our upbringing was. I think sometimes, sometimes rejection and failure are not normalized and we kind of associate it with, okay, well, if I get rejected, it means that I failed. But I think there's a lot of my favorite thing to do is kind of like a little bit of a reframe and maybe perhaps rejection is meaning redirection. Um, but it's really tough though, because I feel like it's important to also let it soak in that you're that being rejected is not reflection of your own values or your own worth it really is simply a different way to go for a different option or enter a different door at least it's had a kind of how i'm also super stubborn um so that's <laughs> <laughs> top tip um as your one of your top traits so i don't really take no as an answer and big part of how i got involved actually in the downtown east side um i hope i answered your question i think i did Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's funny because you, you mentioned the number one 
uh, entrepreneurial complaint you mentioned was, you know, I, 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 I don't have any qualifications, site, site degree. That's almost the definition of an entrepreneur. They're going to something that they're not qualified for. If they're qualified for it, they get a job and they have an ordinary path. Um, the entrepreneurial way is, is different and you never know what the qualifications are until you're way past, <laughs> past the wall. So being super stubborn is, is a really important qualification. So we mentioned in the introduction uh, about belonging and community and, and as important values for you and the people you work with. But it's also part of your story, Christina, and, and a feeling that you felt when you began volunteering at a ridiculously young age. Can you take us back to that first experience uh, that you had and how it relates to the work you're doing now at Employee to Empower? Yeah, I think I'll give you, I'll walk you through an adventure, like two experiences. I think the first experience will be more of an internal journey of just, you know, growing up, not really understanding where I, I belonged because I moved quite a bit between families and my parents split at quite a quite a young age. So I struggled to think, okay, am I with this family or that family? And okay, we're going to move and I was just on the on fight or flight of okay, we're going to leave very soon. Um, and so I didn't really I found my first sense of belonging when I started volunteering in the downtown Eastside community because I felt like the community really received me with authenticity and I seldom got a how are you? I'm good. And if I did say that, I'd get in shit because they'd be like, are you She's like, you don't look like, you don't look like, you sure? And I'm like, okay, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired today. And I have a, maybe I'm only operating at 40% today. And people really appreciate that. And that's kind of where I felt like I belonged. And I started volunteering there when I was 14, which I'll bring you take, blends in nicely with like the second picture and an adventure that I wanted to bring you on was actually my first experience in the community. And I bring it back to all's like when I was, uh, I grew up close to the Chinatown neighborhood. And my mom would always take me grocery shopping in the downtown east side. And I just remember either she would lock me in the car and tell me to keep my head down and not engage with anyone if they knock on the window door. Or she'd, you know, ask me to come on help her carry groceries. Um, because sometimes that's how Asian families uh, help them with. You come and you be, be useful. So... I remember just going in and seeing people sleeping in the streets. And I remember asking the question, how come we get a home to go to? Why are people, it's so cold out, why are people on the sidewalk? And my mom didn't really answer me. She just said, oh, you know, just watch television and media and you'll get it. Like there's always talk about how dangerous this neighborhood is. And I remember watching it with my mom and she was like, see, look, look, look. And she seemed very keen on it. But when I was approached by certain people, I didn't really get that same type of, danger vibe. So I remember just thinking to myself, well, I guess I'll, I want to start asking questions. And it really did piss my mom off because I have two older brothers who are like academic geniuses and they're super smart. But like, I guess for myself, I just didn't know how to take no for an answer. I was like, well, why this? Why that? Just like, Josh, shut up. And so eventually my mom didn't really give me the answers I wanted. So then I started asking my teachers. My teachers were like, oh yeah, watch the news. So anyway, then that's how I thought, well, I'm just going to find no answers myself. I'm not even going to tell me anything. Um, and so I just started volunteering um, since I was 14. And oh, my goodness, I've had a privilege and honor to just see a different side of the community that I wish, I so badly wish that the media would capture. There's a lot of talent in the neighborhood. Um, the earrings I'm wearing right now, made by a 
single mom uh, survivor of domestic violence um, and resident of the downtown Eastside community and found a way to make these earrings during COVID to find her sense of community and reclaim that sense of power. Um, so I get to see the talent in the community, which isn't captured very often. Amazing. So, so you had the, you, the, this community was part of your life at an early age and, and you saw both the bad and the good and saw something there. What did you see? I mean, when people ask me for things. I just, I just took it as we have things that, at home and there's, it was like have and have nots at my first glance. Um, and I felt like when people asked for help, it wasn't something where people were aggressive about it. It was like, hey, like, can I please have some change? And I feel like, I know sometimes there's a bit of stereotype of all, oh, like you shouldn't give money um, because they're gonna use it for X, Y, and Z. They're gonna use it for drugs. They're gonna use it for things that are not deep. It just encourages them. Yeah, exactly. Or like, and I think like there is some merit to that. And I also think there's a different, like I always a bit diplomatic in the sense that it's actually really none of our business what people spend their money on. You know, if the need is that they have to go spend groceries or they need to spend it on drugs because maybe that's why that's the only way that they know how to cope in that moment, then that's, that's their decision. Um, you know, one of my colleagues, who's my first employee, she always talks about give even if you have little. So every now and then, like I will give money. Um, and sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll, I think the other day I actually rolled down my window and I gave someone my headphones <laughs> because I didn't have anything. I said, hey, man, you can sell these for like $15. He's like, yeah, man, sick. I'm like, gave it to him with the window I left. Um, because a lot of people actually are very entrepreneurial on the downtown east side because you're kind of, when you're in survival mode, you got to be resourceful. You got to find ways to make it and survive. So you see a lot of people selling things actually on the, we call it the merch block. Um, on East Hastings. And I mean, I found my shoes there. I found a lot of things there that are um, secondhand. Um, and so I really just saw the, see, I saw people who, who had a need. And sometimes we, if we come from a place of privilege, like we don't have the resources to meet those needs. So then we have to find other avenues to do so. Um, so that's, that's a little bit about my perspective. And I, I wouldn't even say panhandlers are, I think like panhandlers are actually pretty resourceful in the sense that they they have a different sign they get creative with the messages sometimes you hear people tell stories of yeah i made like 20 bucks today and i like bought like actually like a good meal at a grocery store um so people do what they need to survive and i see resourcefulness in the neighborhood yeah tell me about the founding of employee to empower what were you trying to do and what why did you think that you were the one to help spark it i would probably reframe that and i was Perhaps, yes, I was asking the questions, but I would also talk about how it's the neighborhood and the residents that actually shaped. There's two lessons that I actually learned from the downtown Eastside neighborhood that shaped like important powers birth five years ago. And I think it, it's probably a continuation of the story I mentioned earlier of volunteering in the downtown Eastside and starting to get to know some of the residents. And I remember handing out basically a, a care package with like Colgate in toothpaste, toothbrush, toiletries. And I remember this elderly, sweet old man, he, he basically said like he didn't really need the care package. And he was like, yeah, I got a job interview tomorrow and I need a haircut. So thanks very much, but give this to someone else who needs it. And that was that was some a big lesson for me because I didn't, I didn't hear that from my mom or my teachers or the news. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And that's the first lesson of listen to what people need rather than assume. 
And in some ways, I wanted to carry that out in my future interactions with the community because I knew that I wasn't going to be leaving. And I, I'm not sure if you ever heard of the Vancouver Street Store before. Um, have you heard? No, so I haven't. Basically, learning from the elderly man that what we think people need isn't what people always need. And I mean, similar to when you go to a mall, you look for a hat and someone offers you a shoe, pair of shoes, you're going to say no, right? So it's really the sense of dignity. And I carried it out in something called the Vancouver Street Store, which is a dignified shopping experience where people can choose what they want and need at no cost. And typically, it's people experiencing or facing homelessness in the downtown east side. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we gave people an option to choose 10 things of their liking? And... At this event, uh, we had an opportunity to meet like thousands of residents. I remember it. I genuinely remember it just being, okay, I'm going to do this Vancouver street store, bring it to Vancouver. I'm going to have two tents and like two tables and convince eight of my best friends and my mom to come out. <laughs> that was going to be, that was a fun story. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being, there was like 30 volunteers and there was 10,000 donated items. And I was this really excited, overwhelmed 21-year-old at the time. But I started to actually get to know some of the residents. And it wasn't until the fifth year of the street store, because when did the first year, it was such a hit. We thought, you know, when I have, when I'm doing fi finished final exams at school, I'll do this annual event in December. Um, but every year I learned a lot. And it seems that people, when people face disabilities, like like chronic health challenges, um, substance use, it's really hard to work a nine to five. Like imagine having like a, like a horrible neck. Like we have one person, she can't really hold her neck up for very long. So she can only really work for like four hours. So she can't really do a nine to five. So a lot of people then have a flexible alternative to just marry their passion and their skills, such as these earrings, and make something out of it because traditional employment doesn't really have a spot for you, especially with the stigma as well. Um, so really, the the journey really began from learning two lessons from the community. And then when I discovered that entrepreneurship was a need, I had left my corporate job in 2018 to, to start Employment Empower. It just felt like there was so much more we could be doing, especially because it came from the residents themselves. You know, there was a family. Um, he had a, they had a son named Justin, and I remember him and his his mom came like came into the street store uh, when we were just opening. And I remember he he was running by himself at first. He's this little tiny like four year old boy. And you're thinking, oh, it's like by himself at like eight a.m. or 9 a.m. like does he no parents around and he's just flying towards all of us like group of volunteers and we're all thinking to each other like oh, do you know this kid and we're like no we don't we don't know this could be he's running <laughs> he's running faster so we're natural instinct i want to open my hand so they can i don't know i thought maybe he wanted to give me a hug but he didn't want to give me a hug he just kind of like bolted underneath my armpit and like went straight for the toys tent and um he wanted toys he wanted that toy guitar so I just remember him so clearly um, and his parents came in and basically was like, oh my God, sorry, we lost him. Like he saw the toys and he lost it and just like went straight to your event. And they were actually artists and talked about how they struggled with self-employment and getting steady income to actually even afford a gift for him. So that was something that I thought was really prevalent. Um, conversations like that with families who have artists and also people like Marcel, like who makes these necklaces um he's with the creator now but 
people who have also like ideas and are running their own thing, but just like don't really know where else to sell it apart from the streets. And sometimes you get haggled on the streets, right? So we started having a lot more of these conversations and the need for mentorship and, and skills training. Right. Maybe you could take us to the downtown east side. What is it about that neighborhood that has resisted, that, that has proven itself so hard to change? And what changes would you like to see there? Mm. Well, I mean, to speak to, to speak to the side of the community that, I mean, to be fair, there is part of the community where people have given up. I mean, that's to be fair. Um, and I have seen people who have shared stories and how they've tried and just couldn't, couldn't find the willpower to continue. I think the community that we are like closest to are the people who have lived experiences. We call them peers. Um, and that's the part of the neighborhood that I want to take everyone to, because there's such value in looking at people with lived experiences. And I think it's actually leveraging them to do the work and the impact making, because you think about it, you go through a breakup, you want to talk to a friend about it. You want to make sure maybe your friend's gone through a breakup as well. Right. And if they give you advice and maybe have not gone through it, maybe lose a little bit of credit there. Similarly in the downtown East side, there are people with strengths and gifts um, who have gone through a lot of a load of adversities and really have a big heart to want to help others as a result and prevent other people from going through the same thing. For example, um, we have someone in our program, Serena. Her she has faced, you know, challenges like homelessness and mental health in her past. And she now is a peer support worker in the downtown east side and helps people who face these similar challenges that she does. And this is the side that I get to see. And I really want people to think about it because it is it might be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes too, because the typical traditional nonprofit narrative is to create a sense of dependency. It's to is to give that handout and maybe give that, give that meal and, and give that um, clothing item of need. But I think right now what we're trying to create here is a sense of interdependency, which challenges the traditional nonprofit paradigm, I would imagine, um, to really think of people as people with strengths to offer um, and people with valuable assets that they want to contribute, but they simply need opportunity. And so I think one of the things that we provide is opportunity. And it's not to say you got to walk through this door and do X, Y, Z. It's people aren't even shown where the door is. So how can you expect people to walk through it? So we, we show people where the door is and then we're on the other side. People want to walk through it. So that's, that's my perspective. Tell me about what employee to empower looks like now. How many people are involved? What kind of services do you offer? What kind of physical location, if any, do you have? Yeah. I mean, six months ago, we were at a tiny 200 square foot office. It was uh, thanks to a courageous volunteer, Sheila, who was a, who believed in our mission and applied for a giant federal grant that I did not believe that we would get at first. And um, we recently just moved into a bigger space because our entrepreneurs were starting to ask this space is too damn small. There's no windows. Um, it looks like a clinic. Can we get a space? And I remember we always had to say no because we're like, we have no money. And then suddenly this grant came and we actually moved into a, a beautiful, wow. beautiful 1,500 square foot space. I remember we'd always be all shoulder to shoulder in that room because it was so damn small. Um, and then we also had like Carissa and I who were the only employees at the time, two of us with a bunch of volunteers. And suddenly now we have a team of six, actually recently seven. 
So I'm learning as fast as I can, to be quite frank. Um, we went from uh, 17 entrepreneurs to now 50, and we're going on to 170 by the end of next February. Um, this grant was meant to help us become sustainable and expand our operations because we're seeing some really incredible results. Um, it's it's wild. Like there's, I'll give you an example. There's um, the founder co-founders of uh, Scat Patrol, formerly known as Crap Trapper, um, Mark Wood. Um, I, I like both names, right? And we and you can also come up with like funny, like messy Mondays or like well, okay, let me even tell you what it is. It's actually, and you're gonna have an appetite for this, but it's they're a fecal removal service. Like they remove not, not animal waste, but fecal matter. Um, because our city of Vancouver didn't really do much about it. So they are both residents um, in the downtown east side and saw that, oh my God, there's literally poop everywhere. Like no one's doing anything about it. Can we do something about it? And I remember he, him and I had coffee about three years ago and he's like, I want to do this. I want to clean up shit and I'm going to do it in two weeks. And I said, okay, but do you have a plan? And he said, no. I said, okay, how about give me a shot? And and take this take this business planning course. And I think I want this to be a long term thing for you. And he was a little skeptical because we were new, and he and he was also the first person that took our program, which is a business skills training one hundred and one, um, where they learn market research, like social media, financial modeling, all this jazz around you know business. Um, and I, I remember it was so it was such a core memory because I remember at the time it was just me and my board member Scott. We like came up with this curriculum. We met him at the library every week and he would go home and light six candles in his tent. He was homeless. Um, keep himself warm and then do his homework. And then he would come to class every week. Didn't miss a single class. And to date, they've actually removed over a hundred thousand units of fecal matter. And they're contracted by um, in partnership with uh, the city and a, and a nonprofit actually. So it's really incredible. They also have hired people with disabilities as well, and that's one of their biggest missions. So if I give you examples like that, it's it's remarkable um, to see this desire to help others, even though they're going through a hell of a lot of stuff on their own. That's a, a, a really moving story. It's very eye-opening as well. Uh, can you share another one with us? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I'm wearing one right now. I kind of mentioned this one already. Um, oh, I, it's all behind me. Also, this is my entrepreneur section. But um, so this. Okay, we can't see it. You'll have to describe it. I'll describe it. it. <laughs> yes. So it is a palm-sized heart that's made out of something called rug cooking. So it's used, the, she uses yarn and weaves it into a heart. So it's called the Heart of Honor. And it's made by Deirdre Pinnock. And uh, she's a fiber artist. We call her the notorious yarn bomber because she, uh, what inspired her was um, making art um, because her friend had committed suicide and she wanted to, you know, use it as a way to help herself cope with like the mental health challenges of like grief. Grief is tough and it, it's, it's a shitty feeling. Um, and so she kind of yarn bombs mental health related message like you are okay, I care, be kind. And uh, it led to actually this heart of honor where she takes the clothes of people who've passed away and makes it into a heart and then gives it to families who've lost a loved one as a memento. This is my grandpa's, um, made out of my grandpa's uh, blazer. It's this like beautiful, dark gray 
um, texture. And um, this is his burgundy pants. Um, and it's just a really wonderful way to remember. Because also you don't know what to do with the clothes after someone passes. It's kind of awkward. You think, do I donate this? And if I donate this, do people wear it? Um, so really just finding a way to upcycle. And um, she, uses a, she uses art as a way to help herself um, heal because she also um, experiences some depression anxiety on her own so you'll so you see people who are like service providers not trying to become the next elon musk or mark zuckerberg but using it as a way to cultivate a sense of belonging and community because at the very at the very least like you asked me earlier like what do you want people to see i want people to see that there is actually no solution there are ways to address things and reduce things and the reason for that is because a lot of the issues are systemic and they are multi-layered. So you can't just solve something at once. You kind of have to address things one by one. Um, and I think looking at community as a potential way to address these this, these issues in the downtown east side is a really unique way because I feel like when we're when we, when shit hits the fan, we have friends or family to lean on, right? But sometimes people in the downtown east side don't have that, and so that's why we create a sense of community have monthly gatherings where entrepreneurs can have a sense of belonging and community talk to each other about things and not feel like they don't have anyone to turn to. And that in itself is a way of prevention because oftentimes people fall off because they don't have anyone to turn to and they feel like they're alone in it. So that's a lot, a kind of a, our mission at Important Empower or the driving why. Right. What, what changes do you see in people when they connect with you when, when they find that, you know, you're listening, that you're helping them, you're giving them the skills to do what they sort of wanted to do. And, and, this, and, you know, the skills to figure out the right way to do what they wanted to do. What changes do you see in them? I see their confidence grow because when they first, I'll give you an example. Like there's someone in our program, um, when she first started our program, she said that she identified as a refugee and that seemed to be the only thing that really defined her. And she has been a survivor of domestic violence as well. And I just remember she makes these um, functional flower pens. So it looks like a flower in a vase, but then you kind of do this, you yank it out and you're like, psych, it's not a, it's not a flower. It's actually a pen because you lose your pen. So it's, she's like, really good at and very talented graphic designer as well. But when she finished our program, I remember she came up to us and t- I won't forget it. She said it in person. She said, you know, when I first joined, like I, I identified as a like refugee um, and a woman, a, a woman who's experienced like domestic violence. But like when like she finished, she identified as a businesswoman, and that was wow. an identity shifting for her. And sometimes you, when you're in this line of work, you think, Oh, like, are we doing things right? And I think in that moment we thought, wow, like this, what we're doing, it works and we see incredible results. Um, and I, I really like, that's an, a huge honor to see that shift. Um, another shift that I see that I'm really proud to, and it actually gets us up in the morning and kind of keeps us up at night as well, but it's just like beautiful circular economy um, where the people in our program, like traditionally in nonprofits, people finish our program and then they, they leave and then they make room for more people to come in. But like graduation, you know, you have alumna, right? But the alumna don't really come back and engage. And to me, that's a waste of talent. Um, I feel like people who've harbored harbored the skills of skills training and get mentorship, they probably learned a lot and they want to actually help others, incoming entrepreneurs. So Mm -hmm. they become the resource, actually, and therefore impacting more people. Because I feel like the charity is the starting point. 
And eventually my vision is see that people in our program, 170, will all become community contributing leaders themselves and help others. So that way we can reach more people. So have you seen that happening yet or is that still a, a hope? Right now, about 40% of our community are engaged in these like community contribution activities. Like for example, um, Deirdre actually helped um, six people get this grant that she uh, once struggled to get herself. So she's hosting these kind of like grant mentorship workshops and helping others. We have people who want to, you know, pass on the wisdom that they've harbored from like learning social media because, you know, sometimes social media you think, ah, like, do I want to, is it, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, you can't never tell because you're kind of sucked into this loop of comparison, but also you can use it for business and, and social good as well. So people actually come back and want to host workshops and share the wisdom that they have learned. We do to capacity, like we haven't been able to get it further than 40%, but we actually are having some new hires this year to really focus on that circular economy. I really think that's something that we can do differently um, and, and, and impact more lives with a ripple effect. Right. What kind of help, if any, are you getting from the business community? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Well, uh, we are <laughs> getting, uh, so like I said earlier, there's 170 bold talented entrepreneurs who are coming into our program this year. And a part of our programming, first step, first stage, I'll take you through another experience, is business skills training, right? So there's facilitators who take the entrepreneurs through like a 10-week journey. Let's use Crabtopper, for example. They have a business plan. They know what to pitch. They've done research. Now, if they finish the course, they apply to get a mentor. Stage two where they help them bring their business plan to life. So this is where we get the most help from the business community from a volunteering standpoint. Um, they mentor our entrepreneurs. Uh, some mentor them on a three, six, nine month basis, depending on their capacity. And some people have been them, with them for, for a year. It depends on what the needs of the entrepreneurs are. So right now I think we have a community of 30 mentors and they're taking on like one or two people each. And uh, we're looking for 50 more this year. So I'm a big believer of um, sharing your time and talent that we've harbored over these years. And uh, truly, it's such a remarkable and transformative experience to see, you know, the evolution and growth of the entrepreneurs, even if it's little steps, little baby steps. Um, so that's one area. I think sometimes people come and do guest speaking. Sometimes people leave like specialist mentor bursts. I think one of our uh, our mentorship lead, um, Robert, recently just shared that he wanted to start a sales like boot camp because sometimes people struggle to know where to go sell and even how to get your first customer or they think that maybe social media is the way to go. But learning, you know, how to write that email um, to a first prospective customer. Um, so we get people from the tech world, people who are self-employed realtors, um, people who are in finance sector, um, people who are retired <laughs> and have skills and knowledge to share and donate. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways. So do the mentors come to you as, as individuals or are there like companies that you are partnering with that are helping to wholesale <laughs> mentors to you? You know, that's actually a really good point because uh, we naturally, we've been having some people from corporations come to us, but there was, that's a good idea to think about corporate mentorship 
of like, I guess you say bulk, bulk mentors. Um, I know right now we have people from uh, a couple awesome people from Coast Capital um, mentoring some people from uh, Rotary. I think Rotary Vancouver is is a new one. Um, yeah. And then also, let me just think who else is there. There's also people from International Coaching Federation, ICF. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. The thing about mentoring, though, is that it transforms not just the mentee or the protege, but the mentor gets so much out of it. They learn that their thinking improves, their empathy uh, goes off the charts as they, you know, work to communicate and understand with this person and, and you know, <laughs> search for what they can offer to help guide them. And so I can certainly see this as something that a, 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 an organization, a company that 50% of its people are mentoring others would be a powerhouse. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said that, Rick, because oftentimes people think mentoring is a one-way street, but it's bi-directional and people, the mentor learns as much. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, really awesome that you see that because sometimes, sometimes people come to me and say, oh, you know, like I want to be able to teach them everything. And there doesn't seem to be an openness to, to learn, but you will learn a lot. It's a tight knit community. And I'll give you a different example, you know, being as, as much as there are triumphs um, in the organization, there are also tough moments that we have to endure as a team. And um, one of, when, when I talked about Scat Patrol, one of the founders recently passed away um, over the holidays and I was his mentor for three years and one of the things I wanted to highlight here was what happened at the memorial. Well, first of all, we thought it was a celebration of life. It was a viewing. We all were like, oh, and it was in a, like a hundred and hundred square foot room. And we were all just standing there like, it's a viewing, not a celebration of life. Also because, you know, funerals are expensive. And his partner at the time couldn't afford a, like a bigger venue. But in that room, Rick, there was maybe 15 of us, all from different community organizations, um, he touched many lives and everybody shared organic eulogies about him. Nothing was planned. It was super organic, super spontaneous, to be quite frank. And that showed me the sense of community there was. He was an advocate. He always believed in providing opportunity. He believed in the talent in the community. He always said to me, I remember, I said, you know, don't just give me a sandwich and just like, hey, here you go. It's like, look me in the eye and say, have a nice day or ask me, how are you? Like, Treat me like a human being. So I think a lot of people in this community just want to be seen and heard and validated. Um, they don't just want to be treated like a handout. They want to be seen as people with gifts and values because they have those values and gifts to offer. Um, and just provide opportunity for those for for provide opportunity for those strengths to be realized. Um, we don't take a savior approach. We're not here to save anyone. Um, the only person who can save yourself is yourself. <laughs> um, but we sure as hell can provide opportunity for you to tap into the inner power that people already have. Um, and that in itself is a struggle for sometimes people to understand it. Oh, but you know, people are helpless or like people don't really like want to get out of the situation that they're in, but they're all oh, people want to, um, I won't speak for everyone, but at least for the community, um, that I'm a part of. And I know that at least a quarter of the community is involved in entrepreneurship as a result of facing barriers. Um, so Good luck editing this, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, Christina. Um, I got involved in entrepreneurship decades ago because I saw it as an amazing vehicle for 
personal development as well as you know a- achieving financial security and 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 just engaging with the world uh, i saw it as, as as a formidable force and i and i think you do too but is entrepreneurship the right word is that the word you use with people does that resonate with 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 your clients thought you never ask again well actually <laughs> it's we really talk about how entrepreneurship is we don't there's a definition for it. Go Google it, right? We just talked about this as a team, actually. And we don't try to, we do take a non-traditional approach in the sense that, like, you know, how you described it, it is a, a path towards financial sustainability, but we also define it differently. You know, I think that the, the reason why people get involved, yes, you earn a bit of additional supplemental income, but it's not like the BL end goal. It's really about finding a sense of purpose and you get to wake up and do something that's yours and not anyone else's. Um, I would say that, you know, we really have to do define that in the beginning when we talk to our entrepreneurial community about that, when they come into the course, they're like, yeah, so how do we make money? I think there was one dude who said that he wanted to, you know, buy a private jet. Um, <laughs> and I remember we had to kind of say, okay, like we always support ideas that are $5,000 in range. And we empower people who are, may, are low income and face physical and mental health challenges. So we have to get clear about the type of businesses that we're able to support and how we define it, um, which we have an ideation workshop that talks about what entrepreneurship is and the ingredients for a sustainable idea. Um, I would say that's more so how it resonates with the entrepreneur community because people think, oh, no, I can't be an entrepreneur. Like, I'm not capable. But look, like, there's things like the heart. I know I can't see this, but there's a heart that – you're, she's really good at rug cooking and she's a passion for art. She married that and now she gets contracted by the city of Vancouver to make these yarn bombing murals on fences, chain link fences around the community. You know, it can be, it, it's not more simple than people think it is. It's not as complex, actually. If you have a passion for something, you're good at it, you are marrying it and then there could be options. Now, in terms of how it resonates with our donor community, we also have to be very clear about like, like, you know, how success is measured, not measured by the balance books, but it's measured by the human experience. And human experience means like belonging and confidence. Um, and it's cool to hear you say too, Rick, that when you got involved, um, you mentioned the personal development. I can't agree more because when you show, when you sign up for a 10 week course, you have to come to those courses and do your homework, right? That in itself is kind of character building without saying it's character building. By the time you get into the mentorship stage, which is 10 weeks, two months, three months later, you're kind of, you already have those characteristics kind of set in stone and, and, and cultivated. Um, so when you have a mentor, you're going to show up for your meetings. So, and it's also quite an interesting model of mentorship. It's not a, I don't know what kind of mentorship you've had in your entrepreneurial journey, but like, I find that when people tell me the answer, it's not quite as effective, but we really focus on asking the right questions. I don't know if you can share any nuggets on yourself, but that's the approach that we take. No, that sounds exactly, exactly right. Um, one of the things about entrepreneurship is that it, 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 it does entail creativity and, and, and that's a tool that all of us have, but most of us have no clue how to use it, especially some very successful business people. Um, and I, and I think creativity is a totally underused skill. And one of the things you're focusing on is artists. So I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experience turning artists into entrepreneurs. Yeah, because traditionally in entrepreneurship, it's the question of, oh, what problem are you trying to solve? Um, And it doesn't solve a problem. It's not a business. And I think I remember when we were designing our curriculum, we had to ask ourselves the question. We're like, are we really trying to get people to solve 
a problem or are we trying to find the right market to bring to certain artists? So we decided with the latter and we really had to be clear about that because I think there was this kind of underlying bias or like understanding of, of entrepreneurship. But I like, I would say like in the art world, Deirdre is one of them. And I would say another artist, Ooh, um, Ivan, he calls himself the therapist play on words. I'm a lover of puns. Um, and he basically brings like art related activities, um, together as a way, as a form of therapy, it's kind of like art therapy. Um, and he really is a believer of play. I remember when I first met him, he had this frisbee, this biodegradable frisbee that he designed. And um, it's a form of art to bring people together. And he's like, okay, we're going to go play frisbee. And I'm going to host frisbee lessons for people in the downtown east side neighborhood. I remember I couldn't throw a frisbee for my life. Okay. Like I like flunked it everywhere. And I kept saying sorry. And he's like, if you keep saying sorry, I'm going to charge you 50 cents. And I think I owed him like $4 by the end of like, <laughs> he was like, I'm sorry. He's like, just remember to embrace your play and be unapologetic. And it was actually kind of therapeutic because I struggle to take care of myself sometimes. But like people like him, who's like a bit of a edgy, unconventional therapist, he gets, you know, funding to actually host these types of frisbee sessions and bring the community together um, from someone who's Deirdre, who yarn bombs hearts all over the city as a way to spread that mental health related message into the neighborhood. Um that's a little bit more on the art side, more of a product side. Like it's so empowering to see that a lot of the people start their business as a result of their own personal pain point. Um, I know Martin, he's called the walking stick dude and um, his walking sticks are made out of locally sourced wood in, in the, in the local community in, in Vancouver, actually he was healing from a leg infection and he has this bird like that he'll always show you a picture of like a thousand times. And like he used to be able to hike up Grouse Mountain to see this big eagle who like size of like, you know, four foot tall, big bird. But then when he had the leg infection, he couldn't go anymore. And that was his sense of like, that was his release. That was his self-care. Um, so he started making these sticks to kind of like help him walk. I got one for my dad recently and then he got mad at me because he thinks that I'm calling him old. But he, I'm just trying to keep him safe. <laughs> Because he had a surgery recently and he went to go bike in a matter of four days after his leg surgery. I'm like, what are you doing? So anyway, he uses it as a coat hanger now. It's fine. But anyway, <laughs> it's, there's Martin who's like a different type of like artisan. Um, but he's moving to uh, wooden tables now because he's, he's got like 20 years of experience in the renovations area. And um, bringing that kind of skill to life and passion for um designing like you know very beautifully crafted wooden sticks and tables he, he created a business out of that himself so 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 you're telling me that the, the, the help, help me summarize this you the people so many people who've been overlooked by society who've been neglected who who, who feel marginalized and yet you're finding that inside so many of them is this willingness to work, uh, a, a desire to create something, a vision of, 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 of something they can, they can create, that they, that they want to invent. You're finding this in people that society has sort of written off. Yeah. And so that really ties nicely to the first step to want to learn more about the community is actually expanding our social perceptions about the community, maybe shifting from a helpless to people want, people feeling 
being seen as helpless as people who are wanting to be helpful, actually. You know, people are often seen as, oh, you're a burden, but actually people have plans to want to benefit the community with their skills and their talent. Um, And I think that's a really, there's a sense of resourcefulness that's missed in the community. And if we're able to all, all see it this way as people who have strengths and gifts to offer and provide opportunity, I do think that we can probably um, actually even reduce some of the issues around um, homelessness around in the downtown east side. Absolutely. I mean, we think of entrepreneurs as people who see opportunities that aren't obvious. And the, the vision that you have of seeing people who aren't helpless but wanting to be helpful, uh, that, 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 that's a beautiful vision. Obviously, you're just really beginning to ramp up employ to empower. But what do you see next? Do you, do you have a bigger picture in, in mind? Well, my board member has been asking me this question for five years, and I finally got an answer because I realized that a vision is not something that needs to be accomplished. I always thought vision is something that has to be, I have to be able to tangibly meet the goal. But I remember I, I hit a bit of a breakthrough when he said to me, Christina, I am in my 80s and I wanted my company to take across North America and I still haven't met that goal. And I just remember going like, in my head, I'm like, so he's like, so do you know your vision now? I think I have an idea, which right now we are based in locally in Vancouver, downtown East. I'm a believer of scaling strategically. I don't want to grow so fast that we break because we are working with people, not products. And I envision us going national um, in the next five to eight years. And I'm learning as fast as I can. I really want to do it well in, in Vancouver and expand to a couple cities. Um, but right now, we are just we just got the capacity to crystallize our curriculum and our programming. So I just want to make sure we're taking those steps first. And then when the scaling does happen, um, rather than having like pop-ups of important power in random places, we want to do some market research to see what communities would benefit from skills, entrepreneurial skills training? Um, and how do we do that in a way that resonates? Um, so, you know, even for anyone who's thinking about expansion, like I think this was really helpful for me to reflect on because we don't want to blindly grow, right? At the end, I envision us partnering with nonprofits on the ground, say even in Toronto and learning about what the landscape is there, for example. Um, and I know that Rise is doing some amazing work there with um, entrepreneurs who face disabilities. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's under talking to them, understanding what they need, and then doing the same with other key cities um, in the, in the <laughs> I said world, not world, in across Canada. <laughs> um, and then kind of growing that way. Because I, I really, we really value quality over quantity here um, at that time. Um, I, I love what you're doing, and, and I, I, I do like the fact that you use the word partner with. I mean, there's no reason why you have to do all this. If you've figured out um, how, to, how, how to get something done, no reason why you have to be the only ones who do it. And to, to share this knowledge, to share this energy, to share this resource, and, and get this news out across the country, empowering other organizations to, to take a look at this as a solution. I mean, that could be... Uh, all the impact you ever yeah. need. Like partnerships is queen. Like <laughs> partnerships is queen. And I say that because um, so many nonprofits work in silos. And it's a little interesting because if our ultimate goal is to really support as many people as we can, like why not collaborate with each other? You know, collaboration over competition. If you 
share resources versus duplicating, you can actually support more people that way. So we ha- we really value that. We have great partnerships with the downtown Eastside nonprofits and we have refer people to each other. Um, and it's, it's just like people, instead of getting one nonprofit to support you, why not get five as a part of your circle, right? Like we have people who are in a program um, who get mentorship for us, but then they also get like part-time work from like another nonprofit. Um, they get mental health support from another organization. So it's just this like holistic network of, of support. Okay, final question for you, Christina. Um, and it's the question we ask everybody. Any final words of advice from your entrepreneurial experience, your experience building Employee to Empower? Any advice that our entrepreneurs can take away? You, you've been doing the classic entrepreneurial job of building something uh, that on, you know, from, from a very small base with limited resources, having a vision for expanding your impact, what advice would you give other entrepreneurs? And this can't be the same one that I shared in the beginning, huh? Oh, of course not. <laughs> I think if I could say, I was counting my fingers how many words it is, but it's five words, like get comfortable with being uncomfortable um, because, you know, I really did struggle to believe that I am capable. I can think it, but learning to believe it was a huge step in itself. Um, and sometimes in entrepreneurship, people glamorize the, oh yeah, like the, the awards and, and, you know, the impact that you make. But I do think it's important to talk about the reality behind things. Like it will be tough, but proof's in the pudding in the sense that if you have a track record of, always getting through tough moments, really remember that when you're facing moments of adversity. And I feel that's gotten me through my tough moments. Um, I just want to be real here because I know that I don't want to paint this image of like, oh, like, yeah, it's easy. It's it's tough. Um, Especially right now, I'm in year five um, where we're growing and I'm learning as fast as I can. Um, And I find that, you know, like you said, when you ask for advice, um, it is flattering to the other person. Um, but do it in a way that's have humility in this process as much as it is important to know what you don't know. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know and that's okay to share. I feel like sometimes people respect that we have that awareness and at least that's kind of how I've gotten to build the team today. I still don't know what I don't know. Um, and that's the reason why I have such a big mentorship circle. I had mentors. Now we're trying to empower other people to get mentors, so I think that's my last little wisdom nugget that I can share. <laughs> um, All right. That's pretty good. I, I love your statement. I'm learning as fast as I can. And I think that's a problem with some entrepreneurs is that they stop learning. They think, oh, I've been doing this for 10 years. I know what to, what I'm doing. And I don't think you can ever stop learning. So, uh, yeah, you just keep learning, keep learning as fast as you can. And that's how we keep it up. We've been talking with Christina Wong, the co-founder and executive director at Employee to Empower in Vancouver. If you're excited by what they're doing, check them out at EmployeeToEmpower.com. And if you're in the Vancouver area and you feel like devoting your time and your talent as a mentor, then again, reach out to Christina through EmployeeToEmpower.com. And if you don't think you have talent, well, let them be the judge of that, okay? Thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.